0: Right, and I all from have thought since that if Grandpa Walkenear did make heaven, I'm not so sure he did. But if he did, he's going to get the shock of his life when he finds some Baptists there. Hey, everybody! Welcome to the House of Bliss podcast, your favorite show you've never heard of, and the internet's best kept secret. All right, so normally I like to open up these shows with a little bit of commentary about nothing. Maybe I talk about the weather or something like that, but today I've got so much ground that I want to cover. Um, I've thought about splitting it into two episodes. I just don't think that it's possible to do that though. So because of that, we're just going to dive straight in. And if you're tuning in for the first time, Um, You might have noticed in the title that you're listening to part C. And while I try to do a podcast in a way to where people can jump in at any old time, um, I do recommend that you go back and listen to at least part B before you dive into this one. Because I'm I'm building on something here. I I laid a foundation and now I'm going to start getting into stuff that I really think you might want to hear the last one first. Uh, but let me, let me just summarize really quick. Last week, I talked about how the Bible says that faith works or is energized or is supernaturally infused with power by love. and Therefore, if we want to walk consistently in great faith, we need to rid our belief systems of fear-based theologies. And so I started talking about some of the key verses that often get used to teach this twisted lie that God withholds his healing power from us in order to teach us some kind of lesson. And I talked about Paul's uh, thorn in the flesh. I talked about Jesus's terrifying words in Revelation 2.22. And I briefly touched on that really strange verse in 1 Corinthians where it talks about people getting sick and dying from taking communion. Now, if you haven't noticed, I have no qualms about tackling tough scriptures. You know, subjects like the wrath of God or death or suffering may not keep butts in seats as far as Sunday morning sermons go. But they are so necessary to address. Why? Because even though they're uncomfortable to talk about, these realities are pretty much unavoidable. Bad things happen. Now, that's not to say that we have to live in fear of the next calamity, but sooner or later, we all experience hard times of some sort. And so, I've seen more and more Christians lately struggling because they were never taught how to think through questions like, why would a good God allow so much evil? Or where was God during the Holocaust? Hiroshima, the killing fields, the Armenian genocide, the Trail of Tears, and on and on it goes. And it seems to me that if you don't tackle these questions, eventually they will tackle you. God is Always better than we think. And I've found that if we allow him to take us on this journey of asking the tough questions, we end up on the other side of it all with a much more robust and unshakable conviction of his goodness. Because it is finished is not just a wishful slogan or a happy mantra for a positive mental attitude. No, it is the eternal ultimate reality that trumps all other definitions or perceptions of reality. And it is especially important if we're going to be entering the world of ministering to the sick to have a joy that is built on a solid foundation. You know, because I have said yes to Jesus, because I've said yes to being a vessel for his healing power to flow... I have found myself in some really disturbing and emotionally distressing situations. King David once said, If I make my bed in hell, there you are. In all my travels, I can testify that this is the truth. There is a sweet and tender experience of God's exceeding mercy that can only be known in the depths of hell itself. And if we're willing to take the plunge, we will discover that even in the darkest, vilest filth humanity can muster, Christ is there, waiting with outstretched arms. And so this week, we're going to be talking about two gravely misunderstood passages about suffering in the Bible. And then we're going to zoom out and just talk about suffering in general— The big questions like why God doesn't prevent hurricanes. And my hope is that you walk away from this experience utterly convinced that no matter what you see or what you witness in this life, God really is good. Jesus said to pray on earth as it is in heaven. But where does that prayer start? It starts with our Father In the act of being aware and feasting on the goodness of God as Father, we begin to be filled with a power that spills out around us and changes even the very landscape. This is the essence of walking in miracle power, is knowing in your core that God is truly good. How was that for an intro was it too heavy? It seemed a little heavy to me, and um, I don't want you looking all morose like Billie Eilish out there. So, why don't we, um, why don't we do this? I'm gonna play a little bit of ironic smooth jazz for you, and then when we come back, we can dive in. Alright, I hope you're feeling smooth and sassy. So last week, I started addressing religious lies that were taught about healing. And this is lie number two. Okay, lie number two is that God is glorified by our sickness. I once heard a very, very famous pastor say, that we shouldn't ask the Lord to protect our loved ones when they travel. And he went on to say that if God chooses to allow a youth group van to crash and explode, well, he's just as glorified by the horrifying death of those children as he would be if he had chosen to protect them. But either way, God is in control and in his absolute sovereignty. He will choose not what makes us happy, but only what brings him the most glory. Does that sound familiar to anybody? And some of you, after hearing that, are probably feeling something of a sick, tense knot forming in your guts because there's something about this kind of theology that leaves such a gross taste in the mouth. And yet, teachers of this kind of hyper-sovereignty are so good at gaslighting you and making you question your own sense of morality, your own basic human sense of right and wrong. And they will say things like, well, we humans are totally depraved and can't understand the difference between good and evil. God's ways are higher than our ways, they'll quote. And uh, I I once heard a youth pastor explain in a youth group that the events of this life are like squares in a mosaic pattern. If we took all the little vignettes of existence, a couple getting married, a baby bird hatching, a tsunami wiping out a hundred thousand people, or a child slowly withering away of starvation. Well, if we took all of that and zoomed out long enough, we would eventually see a beautiful interconnected picture you know, that God is somehow glorified by our suffering, even if we don't understand it in this life. Now, I'm about to use some language that I'm not partial to using, but that is absolute s- <laughs> 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 poppycock nonsense. <laughs> 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 honky. Now, one of the main texts that's often used to say that God uses our sickness for his glory is found in John chapter 9. But before we read it together, let me just give you two examples to illustrate why this kind of thinking is so detrimental to a life of great faith. One example comes from a friend of mine. Uh, She told me about how many years ago, a mutual friend of ours, let's just call him Bob, got diagnosed with terminal cancer. So she was visiting a church that wasn't her own, and somebody suggested that they all gather together to pray over Bob. So my friend is a charismatic, and this church is cessationist, uh, meaning that they believe that God ceased doing miracles when the Bible was finished being compiled. And so they formed a circle, And they began to pray one at a time. And the people at this church all prayed prayers like, Lord, if it be your will, have mercy on Bob. Give the doctors wisdom and guide their hands in surgery. And the atmosphere was stiff and lifeless and sorrowful. But when it came time for my friend to pray, She really went for it. She was releasing the power of the Holy Ghost. She commanded cancer to leave. She prayed with confidence and assurance. She was declaring scriptures left and right like Bob will live and not die. And she said immediately, the room was filled with a tangible electric anointing. Because something shifted. Faith was beginning to rise in the room. But then... It was time for the next person to pray. And they were obviously offended by the fact that my friend was so presumptuous as to believe that God actually wanted to heal Bob. And so they prayed, Oh Lord, if it be your will, have mercy on Bob. And just like that, everything shifted back to that lifeless, sorrowful, faithless begging. Now, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself because I'm going to discuss this in a lot more detail in another episode. But Jesus never told us to pray for the sick. Yes, I know that the book of James mentions elders and anointing oil one whole time. But Jesus repeatedly gave his disciples power and authority to heal the sick. In Greek, the word power means spiritual force. Think of it like dynamite that's able to accomplish an impossible task. It's that miracle miracle sauce. sauce. It's the boom behind the prayers. And authority means the right or the choice to use that power at our discretion. So think about a police officer. If a police officer walked into a 7-Eleven for a hot dog And happen to walk in on an active robbery? How insane would it be for them to call the chief of police up on the phone and ask permission to arrest the robber? The chief would say, of course. Why are you asking me? Arrest him. Why? Because the police officer has been given authority by the state to decide when to arrest somebody. Now, that example might sound ridiculous, but is it really any more ridiculous than asking God to come down out of heaven and heal Bob? The same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead and worked mighty miracles lives inside of us right now. And Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, which are to steal, kill, and destroy. And so, as his follower, If I discern that poor Bob here is having his life stolen by the devil, well, then I have every right to put a stop to it, not by my own power, of course, but by the mighty, miracle-working power of the Holy Ghost in me. It's not presumptuous. It's not bossing God around. It's not demanding my own way. It is simply aligning myself and my words with the will of God And using my God-given authority. And this is what it means to pray in the name of Jesus. Because I go in his name. I've been sent to carry and represent his name. I'm preaching now. Now, the simple fact is, sometimes things like cancer take a bit of persistence in prayer. I've had times where I'm where I've prayed for somebody like five, six, seven, even ten times, just like when Christians gather together in worship and there's a tangible, perceptible increase in Holy Spirit anointing. When we believers agree together and pray in faith, amazing things happen. The Bible says that the prayer of faith will work wonders. So asking God to heal somebody is the same as a police officer calling their chief and asking him to get in the car and come down and arrest a robber. It, it does nothing. And actually, in some ways, it's worse than nothing because it's, it, it allows the devil to rob people blind. Now, I'm not saying that this church I went to is full of bad, immoral, or stupid people, I'm simply pointing out that the fruit of this theology effectively neutralizes the people of God. Right? If you if you get told every single Sunday for years that you have no power and that God doesn't heal people except by some extremely rare sovereign choice, well then of course you're not going to see healing very often if ever. And and worse yet, You might actually end up being suspicious or threatened by the power of God when you do see it. And that's a great segue into my second example. A few years ago, I actually went and visited this same church from the earlier example. And don't get me wrong, they are amazing, sweet, beautiful, Jesus-loving people. Honestly, they are exemplary in so many ways. But they don't believe in the miraculous gifts of the Spirit. And so one day I walked by somebody in the lobby and I got a word of knowledge for them. Okay, Um, if you don't know what that is, a word of knowledge is when God supernaturally reveals something to you that you wouldn't otherwise know. So the Lord showed me that a man had an old shoulder injury that was causing him ongoing pain. And so I asked him about it. And of course, he was stunned that I even knew that. And he very cautiously agreed to have me pray for him. And of course, he began to feel a tingling heat going on in his shoulder, and I asked him to check it out, and immediately there was a marked difference in his range of motion and his pain level. And I could see that a part of him was so excited by this, but another part of him was struggling to accept it. He wasn't fully healed on the spot, and me knowing that sometimes these things take persistence, I I asked him if I could just pray for him again. But this really bothered him and he you know he was saying stuff to the effect of well no i you know i wouldn't want to presume the will of god you know if god wants me healed i would be healed and you know he went on to talk about how suffering brings glory to the name of god or or whatever and i just said look okay maybe but if god revealed your injury to me and you're feeling something happening is that not an indication that he wants you to be healed And in that moment, I could tell his thoughts were at war with his heart because somewhere inside of him was a voice whispering, God doesn't want to heal you. This isn't really happening. Don't be presumptuous. If God wanted you better, you would be already. And so he ended up thanking me sheepishly and uh, walking away. And I just stood there stunned. I'm not saying this with a shred of pride, but I know that if we could have kept going, he would have a new shoulder. And it's not because I'm so great and so powerful. No, I'm pretty sure the electromagnetic energy in my body couldn't even bake a potato. But I have seen God at work before, and I've seen this exact same condition healed tons of times. But as somebody who's been out and about, you know, praying for people everywhere from Walmart to church parking lots, I can say that I've seen this kind of thing happen before, where people get offended by faith-filled prayers because it grates up against the teachings that they've been fed. And so this is why. I'm on part four of a healing series, and I'm still just talking about theology, because it's not just a list of beliefs. It's not just a statement on your website. Inside, in your heart, what you believe about Father God is ultimately where the rubber meets the road in the kingdom. Now, a quick side note here. In saying all this, I'm not saying that the weight of healing the world is on our shoulders. I know I was picking on hyper-sovereignty earlier, but I do believe that he really does have the whole wide world in his hands that ultimately God is in charge and all ministry flows from what he's already done not from my faith not from my works not from my you know fasting and praying 10 times a day no the bible says that by his stripes we were healed and so all of this i guess you can't really see me right now but i'm using big wide hand gestures all of this the great story of humanity is headed towards this thing the Bible calls apoptistasis or the restoration of all things. And that is happening with or without our help. To quote my friend Katie Spinks, the Lord's doing it. However, I want to walk like Jesus walked. And when we believe bad theology that neutralizes us, when we are unable to pray in faith, we're ultimately not helping the situation. Sure, I know in my heart, that it'll get done eventually. But that doesn't mean I want my life to actively fight against the flow of heaven. I want to be an open channel. If I have the chance to show mercy and release heaven into someone's life now, well, I wanna take that. I wanna seize that opportunity. Yes, God is working all things out with or without me, but that doesn't change the fact that he invited me. He delegated authority to me, and he enjoys my participation. And participating is how I enjoy this kingdom to its fullest. So with all of that being said, let's finally dive in to John chapter 9. So grab those Bibles and iPads and follow along with me. We're going to pick it right up in verse 1. It says, As Jesus passed by, He saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? And Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. There's something really interesting embedded in that question, who sinned that this man was born blind? In ancient Hebrew biblical culture, you have something of a polyphony of voices on the subject of cause and effect. Certain passages, like the Proverbs, will paint justice in a rigid, black and white sort of way. If you sin, bad things will happen to you. If you do good, good things will happen to you. And that's true, right? Well, until it isn't. And I I think that's a question that we still wrestle with today. When a hurricane wipes out a city, believers and non-believers alike want to know, was this some kind of act of God? This was addressed somewhat in the book of Job. The Bible says that Job was the most righteous man in all the land, and yet he found himself absolutely overwhelmed by tragedy. And so you can see this age-old conversation playing out. Job's friends uh, insist that he must have done something wrong to incur that level of misfortune. But Job just keeps on insisting, nope, I'm righteous. God is the unjust one here because I surely don't deserve this. And so you have this kind of push and pull all throughout the Bible. You You have King David saying things like, God will punish the wicked and bless the righteous. That's black and white. But then you have Like the prophet Habakkuk pleading with God to get off his butt and do something about all the injustice happening. And so you have scriptures that kind of acknowledge that the way the world actually seems to work is much more gray. So what we see in the book of Job, in the most basic ABC's nutshell bird's eye view, is not that Job deserved calamity or that God was punishing him. But rather, there were spiritual dynamics affecting the situation that he and his friends couldn't even imagine. Now, we as New Testament believers have a little bit better of an idea of this, that there is an enemy. Job kind of puts God on trial and says, hey, I know that I don't deserve this. You're an unjust God because you did this to me. And so God lets him have it out and he shows up at the end and he says, hey, Job, where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Where were you when I created the morning and the evening and the oceans and the fish? Oh, that's right. You don't even know how nature works. So how are you going to sit here and tell me how the infinitely complex spiritual realm works? Job didn't know what he didn't know. And so fast forward to the time of Jesus And his disciples encounter somebody who's living under great suffering. The man was born blind. And not that blind people can't live incredibly full lives, but this was in an age where blind people got kicked to the curb to live a life of begging because people thought they were cursed. And so the disciples are asking this same question, is this an act of God? Now, if you're going to take Jesus's response as it's often translated, well, then the answer would be yes, God did this. God looked down the corridor of time when he was creating everybody and he looked into the future and he thought, hmm, I'm going to give so-and-so a loving family, fancy cars, a hot body. Oh, but this guy, yeah, I'm going to make sure he's born blind and throw him in a culture that harshly mistreats blind people and... Yeah, this guy's life is going to suck so bad. And why would God do this? Oh, right. So Jesus can supposedly swoop in and receive the glory. So everyone will say, wow, look how amazing Jesus is for healing Mr. Blind or, look how merciful God is for healing this man of an affliction that he himself gave to him. No, I think that ideology kind of falls apart. But I want to let you in on a little secret here. A conspiracy, if you will. This verse contains one tiny mistranslation, but the consequences are massive. Greg Boyd is one of my favorite Bible nerds, a true gentleman and scholar. Now, I may not read Greek and Hebrew, but this guy has won multiple theological Oscars or whatever their awards are called. But this guy, the point is, this guy knows what's up. So let me pull up a delicious Greg Boyd quote for you here. All right. So this is going to get pretty technical here, but stay with me. Totally worth it. Um, He says this. Having said this, there is no good reason to accept this translation. In my book, God at War, page 233, I note that the phrase this happens so that is not in the original Greek. The Greek simply has hina, which means that or let, with the eris subjunctive passive of uh, fanoreo, which means to manifest, which is often intended as an imperative, let X happen, rather than a purposive clause, so that X happens. In Greek, this is called a hortatory subjunctive. In this case, The verse should be translated, neither this man or his parents sinned, but let the works of God be displayed. So Jesus is essentially saying to his disciples, you're asking the wrong question. The only thing that matters is that God is glorified by ridding this man of his infirmity. Oh, I love this kind of stuff. Do you see the massive difference here? Jesus is flipping this age old question upside down. Neither the man nor his parents sinned because not everything that happens is due to cause and effect. Blindness is not something that the Father dishes out in wrath, it's not a fruit of the Spirit. And neither did this suffering happen because God is like some sort of insecure televangelist who needs to plant people in the audience to prop himself up. No, Jesus's life and teachings make it crystal clear. Sickness is the product of the evil one, the devil, the thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And so the question is never who deserves this, but rather what is God up to to make this right? Because God is glorified by his radical mercy. God is glorified by destroying the works of the devil. God is glorified by the fact that he's the liberator of both the prisoner and the captive, the victims and the perpetrators. Jesus isn't asking, what got you into jail? What did you do to deserve this? No, he's simply announcing that you're free. God is not the author of suffering and suffering for suffering's sake does not bring him glory the problem with ideas like this is that people will actually accept suffering and misery into their lives because they think it will bring god more glory yes the bible does say that god works out all things together for our good But what can end up happening is God is so good at flipping bad situations around that we think he actually sent the bad situations. As Bill Johnson often says, God could win with a pair of twos. And what he means is that no matter how bad of a hand you've been dealt in life, the beauty of God's nature is displayed in the fact that he can heal and redeem and reverse every evil thing, not that he causes everything like some kind of sociopathic puppet master. And this beautiful truth can take so much pressure off of the ministry of healing because we can be 100% certain that sickness and suffering and disease or death is the work of the enemy. We can confidently use our God-given authority to release supernatural healing without ever stopping to ask first. But even if somebody doesn't get healed, which totally happens. We know that God can and will flip it around for their good. If not now, then always, eventually. I've got good news for you. You're being stalked. Goodness and mercy are following you, and there's no escaping them. But I want to circle back around here to this question of why. If you're a person who's ever taken a stroll down Skid Row, walked through the slums of a third world country, or been to the slavery museum in D.C., you know how deeply this question can ache in our souls. If it's always God's will for us to be healed, then why aren't we always healed? Why do bad things happen if God is good? And I'm not going to say that I have all the answers here. But I can share a few things that I think will bring a little bit of clarity. So we're going to take a quick breather here, and when we come back, I want to discuss some of these answers. But I do just want to say really quick that I'm going to be talking about some stuff that's pretty intense and somewhat graphic, and so if you have kids with you, you might want to wait to finish this episode without them. Welcome back, everybody. All right, let's get into the good stuff. I'm going to share with you four reasons why we experience suffering even though God is good. So firstly, God created all of us with free will. If I wanted to, I could jump in the car right now, walk into my friend Mark's house and deliver a mighty slap right to his noggin. Or I could spend my day carefully baking him an artisanal cheesecake with a handwritten card full of positive affirmations because as somebody made in the image of God, I have been trusted with an extraordinary capacity to love or to harm others. And though I believe that on the cross, Jesus Christ destroyed the power of sin and death Not everybody has heard this good news and consequently experienced its regenerating power. So what we have then are 7 billion people running around still under slavery to a false identity. And they still possess that extraordinary ability to harm or to love one another. And sadly, as you guys may have noticed, a lot of people choose to hurt. And though we can live our lives fearlessly in the power and protection of Christ, there's still a degree to which this doesn't overwrite other people's negative choices. And this can explain why sometimes suffering just feels so random and senseless. Several years ago, I visited a church one Sunday where during the the previous week, one of the associate pastors was killed by a drunk driver while she was out jogging. And the grief in the room was palpable. You know, from all accounts, this woman was an exemplary lover of Jesus. If anybody didn't deserve to die, you know, it would be this lady. But the fact is, somebody made a series of choices to have a drink, to have another drink, to get in the car, and those simple choices ended someone's life. Well, that same principle extends to entire nations. I uh, I was recently reading a chilling eyewitness account of the bombing of Hiroshima, and the devastation that those innocent civilians experienced was just unfathomable. And there's a point in the article where this Japanese woman who was completely maimed by the blast, uh, she, you know, she's in pain, she's lost the use of her legs, And she's talking to a Catholic priest. And she wants to know, if your God is so good, why did I just go through that? And the priest quotes this psalm that says, We are consumed by thine anger, and by thy wrath we are troubled. And as I was reading this, I couldn't help but imagine myself in that situation. If I had just seen what they had seen, if I had just seen a city devastated in the blink of an eye, I might also be tempted to explain it with the wrath of God. But was it really an act of God? Well, no, it it wasn't. Those little Japanese children didn't die because of God's wrath. They died because some guy in an office in Virginia ordered some other guys to drop a bomb. And those guys? They did it because some other guys in another office in Berlin were orchestrating the largest genocide In human history. As I mentioned last week, there are portraits of God in the Bible that make him out to be the divine punisher. But more often than not, what we see actually happens in the scriptures is that people are punished by their sins, not for their sins. And sadly, sometimes this means that innocent people end up getting hurt by the sins of other people. Okay, secondly, we have an enemy. Now, there's a whole lot of foolishness being preached out there about, you know, hell and the devil and Satan and the powers of darkness, what have you. There are those who believe that the devil is hiding behind every bush. And there are also those folks out there that are teaching that there is no more devil or there was no devil. And while I do believe that the modern-day church has superstitiously characterized the devil into a borderline folk figure, I do believe that there are very real powers of darkness. Yes, they have been defeated and dethroned once and for all by the victory of Jesus Christ. But here we are uh, experiencing what can feel an awful lot like a war that's still going. Well, what is that about? How can that be the case? And as Bill Johnson often says, you know, Jesus declared that he has all of the authority, which means that the devil has none. But as image bearers of God, if he can deceive us into fearing him, if he can convince us that he is a threat, he can take advantage of us. And so darkness knows very well what kind of capacity humans have to hurt each other, and it, go- and it looks for any opportunity to inspire or empower us to destroy ourselves. This is why Paul the Apostle says not to go to bed angry, because it gives Satan a foothold. He's looking for festering bitterness to latch onto so he can fan that flame into something worse. In fact, uh, the book of Enoch actually talks about certain demonic beings that taught men how to fashion metals into weapons and use various plants for shamanic crazy purposes. But essentially, it's saying that these higher beings gave mankind bigger and better tools to hurt each other. And when I think about someone like Hitler and the fact that just one guy— was able to so thoroughly deceive a nation to set aside their human decency and murder millions of innocent Jewish people, well, it seems pretty obvious to me that he had supernatural help. Because babies don't just come out of the womb with that kind of horrible evil festering in their hearts. Now, I don't know what happened in Hitler's heart and mind or childhood, that made him want to give himself over to hatred so completely. But my theory is that he essentially became an open vessel possessed by something much more sinister and powerful. But thank God that we get to be so fully possessed by the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised we would do even greater works of righteousness than he did. But that goes into my third point here. The Bible says that creation groans and awaits frustrated in anticipation for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, I talked about this a lot more previously in my series, The Glories of the Cross, but God created humanity to rule and reign over creation. When mankind is in sync with God's will, there's a harmony, a synergy, an order to nature. And Ezekiel says that the earth freely yielded its fruit and its gold to Adam before the fall. But sin isn't just a spiritual issue. When Adam fell, it actually had a negative impact on the natural order. And so suddenly Adam had to toil for his food. The Bible says that the same gold that he once gathered hid itself under the ground. There's even a prophetic promise in there that when the kingdom of God is fully manifested, the lion will lay down with the lamb and eat straw. Now, I don't know how literal that is, but it points to this idea of a once peaceful and ordered creation that has now been thrown into a violent disarray. The idea here is that the spirit realm has an effect on man, which in turn has an effect on the earth. In the story where Jesus calms the raging sea, he tells the wind and the waves to hush. Interestingly, he's using the exact same command as when he silenced demons in the synagogue. So it's almost as if he was casting something demonic out of the air itself. Well, what does that tell us? That perhaps even natural weather patterns can be disrupted by spiritual dynamics when a When a hurricane devastates a coastal community, we often assign the blame to God. But what if instead of arguing about theology, we began to speak to the storms, knowing that Christ in us has given us his very own power and authority and uh lastly, here, suffering continues to exist partly because we're still waking up to the full implications of the cross. The same God that created stars that are several billion times the size of our sun has taken up residence inside of us. But so far, I haven't met anybody who's really manifesting that kind of power. Paul the Apostle wrote that at least for now, we see through a glass darkly. Essentially, Paul is saying, it's like we're seeing things through a dirty window. We don't yet have all the knowledge. And so I think about God's response to Job where he says, where were you when I filled the seas? We humans tend to think we have all of the answers. And yet here we are. And one of the biggest national debates right now is whether or not there are actually two genders. Sometimes good people get sick. Sometimes we pray and we pray and we pray in faith and and they don't get healed. But this isn't because God wants them dead and it isn't because the work of salvation is incomplete. It's probably because there are spiritual dynamics that we haven't fully grasped. There's powers that we haven't yet learned how to dismantle. But I believe, I believe we will get there. One day, the knowledge of the glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. But right now, we still have a lot of discovering to do. The book of Ephesians says that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God will be made known to the rulers and powers of darkness. The church is awakening and arising. So the question is not, why would a good God allow suffering? The question is, when will the church of God arise and shine? And so to close this very long episode out, you guys are troopers if you're still listening, but I want to return to this question. Where is God in the midst of all of this pain? Well, as Mr. Rogers once said, look for the helpers. When scary things happen, you will always find people who are helping. God is in the hands and feet of those who are moved by compassion. He's in the firefighters. He's in the fundraisers and philanthropists. He's in the EMTs and nurses. He's in the lawyers who rescue little girls from sex trafficking. And he's in the counselors who help them heal from their extreme trauma. He's in the artists and construction workers who beautify decayed cities He's in the gardeners and interior decorators making this world a more beautiful place to be. And as humans, when we come upon suffering, the first thing we wonder is why did this happen? Who is at fault here? But in Christ, this question is set aside. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but let the glory of God be displayed in this situation. And so what an opportunity we have in 2020 to proclaim the gospel. What an opportunity we have to become possessed by this message that it is finished, that Jesus Christ has disarmed the rulers and authorities, that by his stripes we were healed, you know that Jesus is the true and rightful king of the cosmos and he's restoring all things. No matter what temporal hardships we experience, no matter how dark the story of human history may seem, there is always a greater story at work. And no matter how cold and random and cruel the universe might seem, all of our perceptions will eventually be swallowed up in the knowledge of the glory, in the knowledge that we are safe and at home In the arms of a loving father, and that he's wiping away every tear from every eye, that he's restoring every frail body and broken mind, that death is never the last word, but even death itself will be eclipsed by eternal life. Mothers will be reunited with lost children, fathers who died estranged from their sons will embrace once again. And I know I've quoted this so many times before. But it's my podcast, and I do what I want. In an open vision, Julian of Norwich frustratedly asked Jesus why sin ever happened in the first place. And Jesus said to him, It was necessary that there should be sin, but all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of thing shall be well. I don't know all the secrets of the universe. But I do hope that this episode brought at least a little bit of clarity or at least put you in a hopeful direction on these questions. To close this out, I want to say the Lord's Prayer with you. So put your hand on your heart. And let's just say this together. And I'm, I'm not going to do the King James Version, by the way, just in case you're wondering. Our Father in heaven... Holy is your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to the House of Bliss podcast. If you'd like to support this ministry, it is super easy to do so. All you've got to do is go down and hit the link in the description, visit our Patreon page, and sign up. Any amount of monthly giving is going to unlock all kinds of extras and behind the scenes rewards. Another quick and easy way you can support us is you can just give us a five star rating on whatever platform you're listening on. Each and every one of those goes a long way. I'm praying that God seals everything you heard today in your heart and that you stay rooted and grounded in His everlasting love. Thanks again. God bless.